Okay, Esther chapter 4 will be our text for this evening. The entire um, chapter, all 17 verses. And I've entitled the message this evening, What Am I Born For? What am I born for? Let's open in a word of prayer. Father God, I thank you that we can come and meet in this very simple way, Father. I thank you that we can come and offer our prayers and petitions unto you. I thank you that you are a faithful God, you are a powerful God, and you will answer our prayers according to your will. I do thank you for your word. I thank you that it is a lamp unto our paths, Father. It is a hammer unto our hearts, Father, which is what we need at times. I do pray this evening that you would grant us the gift of illumination as we come around your word. Please give us understanding of this text, Father, and please help us to be able to apply it to our lives. I do pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Has the question ever crossed your mind, why has God placed me here? Why am I in my particular family? Why am I living in Lismore? Why is it that God has me doing this certain job at a certain place? Why have I been placed in Lismore Bible Church? Have you ever given any of these questions much thought? We may not be able to answer these questions, but I can guarantee that there is a reason behind it, even if we are not aware of it. And we can be sure of this because of what we believe about God, can't we? We believe in a sovereign God. We believe in a providential God. He does not leave anything to chance. Our God is in control. He's leading. He's directing all things. He can even use evil people and wicked deeds. And he does all of this without vindicating or violating man's free will. God has a plan and a purpose for all of his people, including you. Up until this moment in our narrative, I'm not sure Esther had much idea in regards to the reasoning to what was occurring in her life. It is not until our text for this evening that it really begins to make sense as to why God had placed her where he had placed her and the special task that he had in store for this young Jewish lady. In considering this important moment this evening... I've broken this chapter up under six simple headings. And it's under these that we'll walk through this chapter in discovering the reasons for why God has led and placed Esther where she finds herself at this present time. So firstly, let's consider the reaction to the ruling. The reaction to the ruling. Verse 1 begins with the phrase, when Mordecai perceived all that was done. The word perceived means to discern, to consider, or to ponder. Mordecai had considered all that was done. He had thought about this deeply. The particulars of what had been proposed by Haman when he came before the king. And I'm sure we are not surprised to learn that this man's response was one of devastation, 
when he considered what had been proposed and accepted by the king, this man was devastated. And four actions in this verse prove the devastation of this man. It says he rent his clothes. This meaning to rip or to tear open. And unlike today, this is not a sign of victory. You see certain tennis players will rip their shirts. But this was a sign of mourning. This was a Jewish custom. We see this throughout the Old Testament. And this was also a Persian custom. Herodotus describes the people ripping their clothes after suffering the great military defeats at the hands of the Greeks. Upon ripping his clothes, Mordecai then put on sackcloth. Now, sackcloth was a dark-coloured, coarse material woven from camel or goat hair. And this would be worn directly on one's skin. So this would be extremely itchy and uncomfortable, wouldn't it? The third action that's revealed is ashes were applied. Now, this would normally be applied to the head and the face, But in times of great mourning, one would actually roll their entire body in this black substance. So one can imagine what this man would look like at this particular time. It would not have been a pretty sight, would it? Mordecai not only signified his grief by these actions, but he publicly declared his immense mourning. He went into the midst of the city bitterly weeping. This man, he was carrying a great burden. And one does not have to think too hard as to why this was the case. It was not only the fact that his entire race was now on death row, but it was his actions that had brought this predicament upon his own people. One could imagine some of the nasty remarks that would have been shot at Mordecai. If only you had have swallowed your pride and bowed down, we would not be in this situation. We must not underestimate the great mental and emotional anguish that this man must have been going through at this particular time. I think this highlights a principle for you and I. God is in control, we understand that. But it is not wrong to express emotion and mourn when we suffer pain and loss. Verse 2 is where we must be very careful not to miss the significance of the events that occur. It is here where Mordecai comes before the king's gates. This is the commercial and legal hub of the entire city. And when he comes here, he is still in a state of mourning. What you and I must understand is that it was against Persian law to enter into the king's gate in a state of mourning. The king did not want to witness anybody's suffering or pain, mourning or agony. He only wanted happy people to be around him. Now, aren't you glad that our priest and king in heaven is not like this? but he welcomes us to bring our burdens and sorrows to him. Why coming to the king's gates was so important is because at this location, the royal family, Ahasuerus and Esther, would find out of Mordecai's great sorrow. In other words, 
Esther would now find out Mordecai's predicaments. And this was a way of establishing communication to inform her of what was going on. And this plan worked perfectly. Now consider with me, secondly, the revealing to the ruler. The revealing to the ruler. The servants of Esther come unto the queen and inform her of the situation that is unfolding at the king's gate. They notify her of Mordecai and his current devastation. And upon being informed of her cousin's mourning, the queen is immediately grieved. This grief is described as exceedingly grieved. This was a convulsive, painful grief. Such was her affection and care for Mordecai that despite not even being aware why he was reacting like this, she too is overcome with sorrow. Her solution in this situation is to send Mordecai some clothes so he can cover himself and no longer wear the sackcloth. You know, this particular action lacks wisdom, for she should have found out what the problem was first before providing a solution. It has been suggested by some that these clothes were offered so that Mordecai could then come into the queen, come into her presence, and discuss the issue face to face. But I don't know if that is necessarily correct. The servant of Esther who brings these garments unto Mordecai, probably doesn't expect him to utterly refuse to clothe himself in these garments. But this man does. He refuses to put these clothes on. But it doesn't really matter. For Mordecai now has what he wants. He's opened up the communication lines with the queen. He can inform her of what the king has approved and how this must be dealt with. This communicating between Mordecai and the monarch is accomplished through backwards and forwards dialogue with the aid of a faithful servant. And this leads us to the third point, the relay of the reports. The relay of the reports. Esther, upon being informed of Mordecai's refusal to wear these garments that she had sent out, she figured that there must be a significant problem. At this time, she calls Hathak, who I argue must be one of the most trusted eunuchs to assign him to such a delicate situation. You know, what this does reveal is the sheltered secret life that Esther was living. She honestly had no idea as to why Mordecai was behaving in such a way. She had no clue that a decree had just been approved to exterminate an entire race of which she was included in. So this further reveals to us the terrible life that Esther endured, a captive within the castle with very little to no contact with the outside world, a rather miserable existence. Hathak immediately goes about doing his task leaving the queen's presence, ready to quiz Mordecai as to what was going on. The meeting between Mordecai and the servant outside the king's gate in this very public place, this is where the markets were held, one gets the impression that this was a rather 
brief conversation. There's no small talk. It happens immediately. The eunuch posing his questions and there's a very swift response. Our text tells us that Mordecai told him of everything that had happened. You know, this would include that it was because of him that all of this had begun. The wicked plan that Haman had concocted, the bribe that was handed over, and the approval of the king. And such detail proves that Mordecai knew what was going on. He knew all the facts. This no doubt due to the position that God had placed him in. Now, upon filling in the eunuch with the details, which explained why he was in such a state, he gave a copy of the edict with the king's stamp on it. This would be presented to Esther. So she knew this was fair income, that Mordecai was not exaggerating this situation. And having presented this information, he challenges Esther to intercede before the king on behalf of her people. He wanted her to come before the king and plead for the lives of the Jewish people. What we must understand is in the charge given, this reveals the true identity of Esther. Remember, she had concealed her Jewish identity. No one knew of it until now. Now, Whether this shocked Hasak, we are not sure. Some scholars suggest that he himself was a Jew. But the secret identity of Esther was now out. And this eunuch has a very important role to play in this situation. His role is simple. Communicate the exact message that you were given. But what a vital task he has. It is most probable that he had no idea the important role he was playing in God's plan. And so often in God's work, the Lord uses obscure people, normal people, to accomplish important tasks. One author said, great doors swing on small hinges, so great events can turn on the deeds of small, unknown people. Just as God used this obscure eunuch, he can and will use obscure individuals like you and me for accomplishing his plans. Having the reasoning for Mordecai's mourning, and his proposed charge to the queen, the eunuch would now relay this message back to the queen. But how would she respond? Well, fourthly, we see the response to the request. The response to the request. Esther would have no doubt been anticipating the return of the eunuch. She cared deeply for Mordecai. She wanted to know what was troubling this man so greatly. Verse 9 informs us of the exchanging of information between the queen and the servants. Very little information is given in verse 9. And verse 10 goes immediately to Esther's response back to Mordecai. But I get the sense that there would have been much emotion, probably mourning when Esther is informed of the events remembering that she herself is a Jew and that it was her own husband had approved such a diabolical decree. She must have been devastated, an emotional mess when she was informed of this information. Upon pulling herself together, Esther replies to Mordecai. 
It is interesting that she doesn't mention the extermination plot itself, but only responds to what Mordecai wants her to do. And this is seen in verse 11. And from this response, I think it's difficult to determine whether, es- whether this response from Esther was one of evasion or one of explanation. Is she refusing or is she just trying to remind Mordecai that what he is actually asking is not an easy task? Verse 11 begins with, Everybody knows Mordecai. The servants, the people, men and women. It was common knowledge that one cannot just come before the presence of the king if he is not called. And he or she will be put to death if he does this. The only way his life will be spared is if the king extends out his golden scepter. This was the Persian law. Now obviously there had to be some rules and regulations. I think we understand that. We just can't go into our Prime Minister's office and talk to him. There has to be standards. And the only way that it was possible to come before the Persian king was that a request would be made and one would have to await an invitation. Now, this particular request would be made to one of the king's chief of staff and he would often demand to know the business of the one who wanted to come before the king. Why is it that you want to come before the king? So the question must be asked, since there is considerable time before the events, there's still 11 months before this happens, why then doesn't the queen just put in a request and wait for an invitation? And this is a very logical question. I think the answer is this. We must remember that Haman is second in charge over the entire kingdom. And he would be aware of who wanted to come before the king and why they wanted to come before the king. If he was made aware of why Esther wanted to come before the king, he would make sure that that did not happen. So this is why Mordecai did not ask her just to put in a request, but to boldly march in before the king. And Esther, when she hears this request, is no doubt scared and is very quick to spell out the dangers of such a plan, which I think we can understand. Now, further complexing this plan and the possibility of Esther finding favour with the king, is she says here, I have not been called before the king for 30 days. You know, this perhaps seeming to her that she has lost favour in his sight, you know, which I'm sure those that are married here can understand. Not seeing your partner for 30 days for no apparent reason. Now Esther is quick to point out the difficulties in this task. She would go against the king's decree. She would go against his favourite man in Haman, require the king to give up a small fortune and place her life in his wicked hands. I think she was definitely hesitant, which I can definitely understand, and I'm sure you can also. Esther's assignment was extremely difficult, as is often the case for the servant of God, for this provides greater opportunity for God to do great things and bring glory to his name. Now, just now, Perhaps Esther is beginning to realise as to why God has placed her in the position he has. He has a plan for her 
even though at this time she is extremely scared, perhaps even defiance, which is how I think Mordecai understood her reaction as it was reported to him. And this leads us to the fifth point, the rebuke of the response, the rebuke of the response. It's interesting in verse 12 that this message was accompanied by more than one servant. Verse 12 says, and they. It seems to be the case that Esther sent numerous servants back to Mordecai this time. You know, I think that we can sympathize with Esther. You know, this is not an easy task. But Mordecai, he has no sympathy whatsoever. Upon hearing the reports from the servants, he responds with a strong rebuking challenge in regards to serving in this great time of need. And it is within this rebuke, I feel that we have revealed to us more clearly than anywhere else the true heart of Mordecai. He is a man of God. And Mordecai, like a textbook preacher, uses three lines of argument in rebuking this response. They being protection, provision, and providence. The first line of argument is protection. Is protection. Mordecai makes it more than clear that Esther will not escape the death sentence that has been placed over the Jews. Even though you're in the palace, don't think this will save you from this decree. The palace will not protect you, Esther. The king will not protect you. He would just replace you. you Just like you yourself are a replacement. Haman would make sure that every Jew was slain, no matter who they are or what they did. Mordecai's point is this. Esther had a chance to live if she went before the king. But if she did not attempt to see the king, her death warrant from the decree was far more certain. Although this argument showed no compassion, it is a very valid point. The second line of arguments is provision. Is provision. This second line of argument is very simple. Mordecai believed that if Esther refused to be involved, God would provide another way for the Jews to be saved. In other words, God can do without you, Esther. God doesn't need you. God's ability to deliver the Jews was not dependent on any one individual, but his own power. Mordecai believed that God would not let his people down, even if Esther did. And I think this deep confidence reveals that Mordecai was aware of God's promises in the Abrahamic covenants. And because of these promises, it was impossible for the Jews to be wiped off the face of the earth. God would work. And that prophecy is still the same today. Hence why Israel still exists. And God's purposes are never thwarted by the failure of one individual to respond positively. You know, God would provide, even if Esther was not willing. That was the argument. The third line of argument was the argument of providence. Of providence. We see this in the last phrase of verse 14. It says, And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? 
In other words, for this reason is why God placed you in the palace. This is why you're born. This is why you are in Persia. This is why you are queen. God has been working all of this together for this particular purpose. And this statement reveals a real deep conviction of God's providence and a belief that God rules the world. Esther, this is not an accident that you are the queen and in the palace at this time. This is God's plan. You know, I'm not sure up until this point whether Esther had considered the providence of God. You know, perhaps these words from Mordecai were the light bulb moments. It now made sense. And Mordecai makes a very compelling argument. And we will consider the response to this rebuke in a moment. But I wish to pause just for a moment before we move on to the last point. And I wish to consider five practical points in regards to God's providence in our life. So number one, God has divine purposes to accomplish in this world. We see clearly from our text that God had a plan and that involved his chosen people Israel. God today has a plan. He has a purpose. He has a chosen people, the church. There is nothing in this world that is outside the influence of the purposes of God. He is in control. And number two, God accomplishes his purposes through people. God accomplishes his purposes through people. Have you ever given any thought to this? That the Almighty God, He could do it however He wishes to. He chooses to use people like you and I to accomplish His purposes and plans. This is truly amazing. And God can use all people. God can use you. God can use the wicked people of this world to accomplish His purposes. God loves to use ordinary folk like you and me to accomplish His plans. Number three, God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. If Esther rejected God's will for her, he still would have saved his people. If you and I refuse to obey God, he doesn't need us. He can either abandon us and get somebody else to do the job and we will lose the blessing. Or he can discipline us until we surrender to his will, just like Jonah. But we must remember that God doesn't need you and me. We are not irreplaceable. Number four, God isn't in a hurry. God isn't in a hurry. God will accomplish His plans in His time. In this story, it often seems as though Haman is in control, that Haman is going to get his way. It seems that God may not even be present But in his time, he provides. God is always in control, but will act in his time, not our time. And number five, God has a purpose for all. God has a purpose for all. God doesn't act haphazardly. God didn't place Esther in the palace for no reason. God doesn't work in our lives for no reason. He has a plan. He has a purpose for each and every one of us, no matter how big or small 
that may be. Mordecai, having presented his rebuke, the servants bring it back to Esther. How would she respond to such a rebuke? Well, sixthly, let's consider the resolute reaction. The resolute reaction. This stirring rebuke, this stinging rebuke from Mordecai certainly had the desired effect. Esther immediately asks for Mordecai himself to gather all of the Jews in Shushan and to fast with herself and the maidens. Although prayer is not mentioned, we can be certain that this was the point of the fasting. Prayer and fasting are frequently found together in the Word of God. And to be quite frank, what benefit would mere fasting have at this present time? It was the request of Esther that all of the Jews would participate in this time of preparation, recognizing that she needed the support of others and God's intervention. Once this time of preparation was complete, she declares that she would come before the king. Her doubts and concerns have been somewhat addressed. I get the sense that she now realizes the great influence she'll have and the fact that God had placed her in this position for this situation. And the attitude of this young lady is indeed admirable in response to this rebuke. She declares here, if I perish, I perish. This is not some fatalistic remark, but it reveals courageous determination. She was submitting to the will and plan of God. This was a bold attitude. She was determined to obey no matter what it would cost. Esther was certainly not without her flaws. But our heroine should surely be judged by her brave acts and her commitments to the plans of God, not by the natural fears she had to fight. If I perish... I perish. What a truly remarkable, submissive attitude to the plans of God. The odds were stacked against Esther. The law was against her. The government was against her. Her gender was against her. The officers were against her. All this was against her. Yet she was still determined to obey what the Lord had in store for her. It was although she knew, Romans 8.31, if God be for us, who can be against us? Beloved, God has a plan for you. He places you in certain places at certain times for certain tasks. We may not always be aware of what they are, but we serve the providential God. The question is, will we submit to the providence of God in our lives, even if it means we perish. Could we truly declare, if I perish, I perish, for this is what I was born for. Amen. Let's pray.